0: And welcome to part two of our interview with Johnny Eccles. Want to back announce that great song. Little snippet you heard from Bummer in the Summer. That's off their incredible third album, Forever Changes, which we're going to be talking about. You're listening to Gonzarilla, the podcast about music, movies, comedy, and all forms of obsessive consumption. My name is Brian Bentley. If you guys were with us in part one, you heard Johnny talk about touring with Little Richard, hanging with the Beatles, Playing with Jimi Hendrix and Billy Preston, and how love ruled the Hollywood Sunset Strip club scene in the mid 1960s. Johnny was also filling in details of how they recorded their proto punk nugget, Seven and Seven Is, a song that absolutely inspired bands like the Stooges and MC5 years ahead of its time. So we left off just before the recording process involved in some of the sessions for Love's third album, Forever Changes, a record that forever changed the music landscape for many of us. So let's pick it up in part two with our interview with Johnny Eccles. Let's move on to the record that changed. I mean, obviously changed your lives, changed the lives of so many people. And I've talked to young guys who talk about just what a mind blower that forever changes is. This was your third record. I would rank it up with Pet Sounds and Revolver and Aftermath and, and all those records that were so transcendent to everything that was going on that there was really nothing to compare them to. That was originally supposed to be a double album? Correct, yes.
1: We were starting to get, you know, a little miffed because Arthur's getting credit for stuff, and Brian and I are actually writing the music, and and Kenny also, you know, to a degree. But we're feeling that we're being left out. We're not getting credit that we deserve. So we had... Uh, decided that Forever Changes, that the project that turned into Forever Changes was going to be a double album. And so Brian and I worked on songs, so I would do one side, Brian would do the other side, and then um, the other two sides would go to Arthur. So we had worked on them for months and months. And when we get to the studio, we hear that just it's just dropped on this. record company can't afford a double album right now because it's really expensive when you add strings and horns in the double album so that they would do the second part uh later and it would be another album entirely rather than a double album well of course you know both of us were devastated by that brian and myself but brian took it harder than anybody and he basically staged a minor mutiny. He wouldn't play Arthur's stuff the way he would have played normally. There wouldn't be the same panache and eel that he would put to it. And um, when we started playing, it just wasn't working. And, you know, he's sulking and stuff. So um, Bruce Bodnick, who was kind of an he they said it was the producer, but actually Arthur produced it. And Bruce was just kind of keeping the peace. And um, so they brought people from the wrecking crew down and they were going to play with us, you know, to kind of get the foundation together. And then we would add our little flourishes and I'd do the leads and all of that and maybe we could get this thing done. Well, um, they brought the wrecking crew down and I had known Don Randy and uh, Hal Blaine, you know, from playing studio work before. So uh, we started Now these guys are fantastic musicians, but they didn't sound like us at all, you know? And so when we did the first couple of songs and realized that this just can't work because these guys are polished and, you know, but they don't sound like us. Yeah. And so um, it just, we got to the point where we're just going to call it quits. And uh, we just sat down and talked to each other and decided, is this the way, you know, you want to go out, you know, Kind of a fizzle and we just kind of you know talked it out Electra offered us a bit more money and so we went back into the studio and and finished the album because i mean we had worked on these songs for a while so it wasn't like we didn't know the songs or there was something keeping us from playing it was just you know egos and hard feelings that was keeping us from finishing it so once we'd straightened out all of those problems and decided that we were going to do it we finished it within I think less than a week
0: yeah it was listed as a, as a 64 hours total which is not much i mean that's yeah. that's moving yeah. pretty fast
1: yeah it you know as i said it was we were ready to go it was just once we got over the the, the hard feelings
0: I, I think you know alone again or which is a song that a lot of people recognize and they don't but they don't know who the band is, but they know, oh, yeah, that's a great song. I think what makes that song is the flamenco guitar on that. Can you talk about how you decided to go in that direction?
1: Okay. Well, that is serendipitous because initially uh, Alone Again was supposed to have a banjo intro. Now, we were you know, young and arrogant, and we thought, oh, ban- banjo, it's strings, we tune in, that we could play it. So neither of us, Brian or I had any experience playing banjos. So we rented them and they brought them and put them down really nice banjos, but we couldn't play the damn things. I mean, it just sounded horrible and it sounded so bad. And we spent hours trying to figure out something to do with these things that uh, Alone Again was just about to be shelved and we're just going to do another song. And, um, we went to lunch and we came back and I'm in the corner noodling. I play Spanish, you know, riffs and things. But mm-hmm. Lorendo Almeida, as I mentioned before, was a teacher, so that's one of the good things to do to warm up is to play Spanish riffs. And so that's what I'm doing, just you know, doing finger picking and playing Spanish and flamenco runs. And uh, David Angel, who was the arranger, he heard that and it was his idea. so why don't you open the song with one of those lines and do that. And so I started, you know, fiddling with it and coming up with little, you know, touches here and there. And and uh, Brian said, yeah, okay, man, let, let's do it. Because he was becoming, you know, upset that his song was going to be shelved. So if there was a way to save it, then he was all for it. And so we did this a couple of times. And I played the, the Spanish riffs in the beginning and opened the song with that. And it started to really, you know, become something. It was a so-so song before. But then um, David said, let's put a trumpet part, and he's going to double your guitar line. So there's a little thing where I go, we're playing in G flat, and I slip down to B flat to do this little run. And the trumpet mirrors that. He's playing da-ba-dee, da-da-da-dee-da-da. So he plays what I had already played, and it really, then Bruce, you know, did some little twiddling of the knobs and brought my guitar up a little in certain places and lowered it. And um, it ended up being really a great song where it started out being, as I said, a so-so kind of bluegrassy song, but that was all just serendipity and having a magnificent arranger, uh, David Angel, and he's the one that actually you know, kind of put that together from the ideas that we were working on. He just brought them all together and turned them into a song.
0: The flamenco uh, guitar and the uh, horns and everything and the strings, it gives the song a a grandeur and a a scope that is cinematic. Yes, it is. It's amazing.
1: And Brian was one happy camper. I tell you, because that song has earned a a boatload of money. It's been covered
0: dozens of times. I got to tell you, my favorite song on the record, specifically for the last 30, 45 seconds of it, is uh, House is Not a Motel. I have never taken acid, but I once cranked that song up with the headphones and listened to your guitar at the end of that, and I, I felt like I had. It's an amazing, amazing song.
1: Well, I keep using the term serendipity, but this again was weird because when we did the first solo, we know we had finished the song and then now we're at an A track studio, so I can overdub now. And uh, I did the first solo, but there were some problems with the headphone system and I couldn't hear what I had played. Now I need to be in the studio. I can't be in the booth playing. I need to be in there with my amp, you know, and just crank it up and play. And it was either go in the booth and listen to it, which would have taken the waste of the spontaneity and the feeling, or not play two guitar solos. And so Arthur worked it out to, he's in the booth and I can see him. So when the first guitar goes up and higher on the neck, Arthur is raising his arms up high. And when I'm playing lower, he puts them down low. And so I played the second solo remembering what I thought I had played on the first one. And it's so strange that they actually blend together. And it sounds like it was written that way, but that was just total, just an accident. Really. And that's
0: all you at the end of the song, right? Yes,
1: that's all me playing. Wow. Everything.
0: You mentioned a situation with Neil Young. Neil coming down to record some tracks. I mean, he had that song, Expecting to Fly, which was a big... Everybody was talking about that record because it was so well-produced. Can you tell us briefly like how that worked out or didn't work out?
1: Well, you see, we knew Neil. We used to hang with Neil, smoke grass and hang out and trip with Neil. And we just could not accept him as a producer. It just wouldn't work. Now, we didn't know he was even to be involved until we get to the studio. And Bruce Botnick had asked Neil to come down because... At that point, Neil was hard, going through hard times, and he was about to be evicted. Really, and he had no money, wow. so he was going to get I don't know, a producer's cut for producing this one song. It would have been, I Daily Planet. And um, when he got there, as I said, Arthur and me both started laughing, and, and you know, we're the laughter turned into wait a minute, man, you you can't. You, Serious because Bruce is serious, Neil is serious, but we're not. And so, um, after a little talk, and and, uh, we just say, Man, this can't work, and don't do this. Why don't you just pay him, you know, whatever for the day, and uh, let's just call it a day? And that's what they did. So, he had no involvement whatsoever in any part of that. It was just that uh, dumb idea by Bruce Botten to help Neil out, which uh,
0: Uh, wouldn't have worked. Yeah, maybe a little overthink on that one, but um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about the castle a little bit. Okay. This is a phenomenal story about this place. It was uh, formerly owned by Bella Lugosi. No,
1: no, no, that's not Bella Lugosi. This was uh, an old uh, silent film star. Bella Lugosi was where we did the first album
0: cover. Okay, okay, yeah. Okay,
1: yeah, but the castle was. I'm not sure, now. it's either Lillian Gish or, or one of the other uh, silent film stars, and she had moved to uh, Paris, and she had this humongous estate in the Los Feliz, near Griffin Park, Las Feliz area, and we call it the castle, but it was like a just a really huge estate, and they owned all of the grounds and stuff, and it was just really lovely, but it had gotten into disrepair. and people started just camping out there and squatting there because no one lived there for years. And uh, the city was getting upset because there's you know, people hanging out there and stuff and the, people, the neighbors didn't like it. So um, Jack Simmons uh, was a friend of Brian McLean's father who was an architect and they asked us if we would like to live there. And we said, oh, we can't afford to live there. And he said, listen, all you have to do is take care of the place, pay the taxes, and that's all you have to do. Well, back then, because the place was, you know, kind of in disrepair, it ended up costing us $150 each to live in this humongous mansion that uh, had a, the fireplace was large enough that you could walk in it. I think there are pictures of Kenny Forsey standing in the fireplace these beautiful marble floors and the blown glass solarium. And this this place was just, I mean, if you saw it, you would have thought a king or a prince lived there. um, You know, as I said, all of this beautiful rosewood paneling and stuff, but it had started to uh, become a little derelict. It was losing its charm. And so we got to live there and it became the party spot. You know, so whenever musicians like Hendrix or Jefferson Airplane, when they would come to town, you know, they would stay in one of the suites there because they had divided the yeah. suites. And so it was, just, yeah. and so it became the spot, basically, for, for quite a while.
0: L.A. had become uh, such a melting pot and such a attraction for people trying to make it in show business, through making music, that you had all sorts of types of people mingling. And one of the guys that you ran across was a guy by the name of Bobby Busole. Correct. This is actually quite an interesting part of your legacy and story because not many people can talk about a member of the Manson family and discuss his guitar skills, you know, in the same sentence. And I, I was curious how good a guitar player was he and how did you meet him and how did you finally decide Hey, this guy isn't going to do me that much good. We were playing
1: at a place uh, called The Brave New World. I mentioned that earlier. Yeah, and um, during we we would play a song called Revelation, or we at the time was called John Lee Hooker, but we couldn't use his name, so we changed it to Revelation. And uh, we would play this song every night, and we would invite people, you know, to come up and jam because it was just a straight rock and beat you know and you could come up and learn it and then, you know a couple of minutes you were you know in the groove and so people would come up and plug in and play and one night uh Bobby Boussole came we called him uh, I think he called himself Cupid uh, yeah. and he came in and he plugged in and we were playing and he seemed to fit in and he got a good nice groove going and um, so I didn't think any more of it but then the next night he showed up and asked if he could play and we said sure so this became a habit he would just come down every night and plug in and and play and pretty soon he started playing other songs too and so um, he became part of the group now he wasn't paid and he was an official member of the group but he was part of the group he came in and you know he went back with us to the dressing room and he hung out with us but um he was just not an official paid member of our group And um, it sounded good, and he played for quite a while, for several months. And then uh, we met Brian, and um, we invited Brian to come down. We had met him at a place called Ben Franks in Hollywood, and that was where all the musicians would go after the gig, would go hang hang out there. And so we met him there, and um, he told us that he was um, the roadie for the birds. And he introduced us to David Crosby, and then lo and behold, the next night uh, Brian shows up, and he brings David with him and several of the people that the Birds follow. You know, they they called him the Sherwood Forest crowd. I and mean, these were um, you know dancers basically. Yeah. And they would come and dance, and pretty soon um, Brian played and loved his playing. He fit in with our group. And all of these people, of course, they came with him. And so we ended up um, telling Bobby that um, he was no longer needed because Brian fit in so much better. And he would be someone that, you know, added to our group besides all the people that came with him. He just added a certain something to the group that kind of completed us. And then Arthur and I knew that this was the group, you know, when uh, we played a couple of songs and thought, wow, this, this is the group that can actually do something. So,
0: did, um, did you ever get any way, even peripherally, mixed up with any of the Manson stuff? I, I believe I saw an interview with you where you said that Bobby Bousselet said, hey, we're going up to a guy named Gary Hinman's house. Do you want to come along?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. Bobby uh, came to my house, i say, and We had been on tour. And you know, back then, everything was so open and free that you didn't lock your doors, so.
0: I right. came home
1: from the tour. We had been in San Francisco, and Bobby uh, was in my house. He was just sitting on the floor playing one of my guitars, and it was perfectly fine. I hadn't seen him for a while, but so I'm happy to see him. And and um, I didn't know, but there were, you know, I could see the my bedroom door is closed. And I said, "Is there someone in there?" And he said, "Yeah, Sadie came with us, and um, <laughs> just she was tired and wanted to crash." So. Um, it's sure. That's fine. And um, a while later, this thing came out—this really skinny, cadaverous girl that really was in need of a bath—had been sleeping in my bed, and I was, you know, upset by that. And we chatted for a while, and Bobby said, "Well, I better go on. It. Charlie will get mad." And I said, "Charlie? Who's Charlie?" He said, well, "The guy we live with up." Bond Ranch, I think he said. I'm not sure if it was Bond Ranch or the other one, but anyway, um, I said, "Man, he's going to get mad." You mean, dude is like your father, you know? Because that was just weird to me. He's upset that somebody else, you know, um, doesn't want him to be where he is, and it turns out that, of course, uh, Manson is a, a very racist guy. And he was afraid that Sadie, who turned out to be Susan Atkins, one of those murderers, to tell him that. So that was as close as I came to any of that, is having both of them in my house at the same
0: time. You said you were friends with Dennis Wilson? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just,
1: you know, knew Dennis through the scene. So yeah, I would go to his house quite a bit and...
0: Were you there when I, Charlie moved in and sort of like took over the place? Did you yeah, see I any Yeah, I went time? there
1: and, and I saw all of that. And that was the first time I actually met Charlie. And I see this little sawed-off runt of a guy who... I listened to one of his songs because they insisted. I listen to his stuff. And I just thought it was just pablum, pedestrian word salad. It made no sense. It was just nonsense. And um, so... I'm trying to be cool. You don't want to hurt someone's feelings, but you know, I, I didn't give him any indication that I thought what he played was good or even acceptable. So I said, yeah, yeah, cool. You know, just kind of wanting, you know, not to to be involved with him because you, you could just see he was just not the kind of person you wanted to be around.
0: Did creepiness just kind of come right off the guy? I mean, did, did yeah, he just? Yes. yeah, and, yeah. And
1: he, everybody. He was afraid of him. And, and I'm wondering, why are they afraid Afraid of this little, tiny, little guy who needs a bath? So all <laughs> of them needed bath. It was so weird. It was like they never took baths.
0: The 60s had a lot of great concepts I could get behind. But I can't process this whole thing about not bathing. <laughs> Arthur wrote a great lyric for a House Is Not A Motel. The waters turned to blood. And if you don't think so, go turn on your tub. I know that was probably written for the Vietnam War, but it could have been written about the summer of 69 in LA. Yes, it could have
1: been. Yeah, but that, that, that line, that's, there's an interesting story about that. We were playing in San Francisco, and there was a, an AWOL soldier from Vietnam. We were uh, sitting at a table, and he just walked up and sat down and without being invited, and um, he started talking, and he's telling us about Vietnam, And you know we're thinking this guy's a little weird, so we want to leave. We're gonna say, man, we gotta go. And he puts a gun on the table. I think it was a 45 or something. It was a big, huge gun. And so then we realized this is serious. So we sat back down, and he said, I I want to finish my story. I'm not gonna hurt anybody. And so he starts to telling us that when blood mixes with mud in these warm areas, it turns gray and that there would be times when one of the service people, the soldiers, would be wounded, and he would be in the field all night long crying out for his mother or crying out for God. So you you hear in one of the songs, saying one part of the song is saying, uh, you can call my name, and he's talking about the, the story that this guy is telling us. And after he finishes telling us all about the horrors of war and all of that, And that he's actually AWOL. He just gets up and takes his gun and splits. And Arthur turns that into a song.
0: I always wonder about the 60s. Like, is the gun on the table really necessary? Uh,
1: Well, no. I I think he wanted us to stay and hear him out.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And,
1: And so, of course, when he put it on the table, we
0: heard him out. Johnny Eccles and his incredible guitar work at the end of A House Is Not a Motel. Why don't we take a listen to it? More confusions,
2: blood transfusions. The news today will be the movies for tomorrow. And the waters turn to blood. And if you don't think so, go turn on your tub. And if it's mixed with mud, you see it turn to gray. Then you can call my name. I hear you calling my name.
0: everybody that's ever been in a band remembers the first day they got together with the, with the guys to play and they remember the last day when they realized that it was ending and for for your band i thought that it ended ridiculously prematurely do you remember what the feeling was in your gut i mean you're you're young at this point i mean you're like what 21 years old yeah. and you're being told this incredible thing that, you know, we've been on billboard and we've been on the on American bandstand and we've done all this stuff and it's over with, I mean, what, how did that hit you and what were you thinking?
1: Well, see, it's, it, it wasn't so sudden for me because the uh, forever changes fiasco when, you know, we were expecting one thing and we got another, that still was there, you know, there was an undercurrent and, um, so I like, as I mentioned before, I like blues and jazz. And, you know, I Henry Vestine of Gant Heat was a really dear friend. And we had talked about putting together a blues band, a righteous blues band. So I'm looking, you know, more and more toward doing that. Um, and then Brian calls me. And uh, unknown to me, I hadn't known this at all, that during all of this turmoil of doing forever changes when Brian wasn't playing right and all of that, that he had been talking to a lecturer without any of us knowing it with Jack Holtzman. And they had worked out a deal where he would do a solo album. Of course he would stay with love, but they were going to do a solo for him. And that was why he decided to play Arthur's songs properly. And, you know, um, so when he calls me up and tells me that, you know, I'm, at first I'm just really, really angry. And then, you know, I said, let's go talk to Arthur and tell him the good news. And Arthur did what I knew he was going to do. But, you know, I just didn't have the heart to do it myself. So when we see Arthur, our, our Brian tells him, you know, yeah, I worked out a deal with uh, a I'm going to do a solo album. And Arthur said, ah, Brian, that's fantastic. And, you know, and gave him a hug. Man, that's cool. You're fired. <laughs>
0: I'm no, to laugh, yeah. but I was I was waiting for that. You know, that's yeah, great. You're
1: that that. And uh, we tried a couple of times to put it back together, but you know, once once it's broken, the magic is gone. It's just gone. And we played a couple of gigs at Santa Monica Civic, and uh, gosh, I think the uh, Ciros, uh No, it wasn't Cirros. Was called this Boss by then. Anyway, it uh, and Brian wasn't there, and uh, we played, and it just didn't sound. The same without his input it didn't feel the same on stage and um, we just walked away and arthur continued playing but it never was the same They he released a few records but they i don't think they even earned back the studio cost
0: i think you said at one point that brian was essentially irreplaceable just not only for the spirit but like the texture that he brought to the band the way it was like a Brian Jones thing you got this dimension from him that was yes, unique he yes. was you know it was much more
1: integral to the group than we than I even realized it was just standing on stage when he wasn't there it wasn't the same group anymore it was somebody else so it was easy for me just to, to walk away because it just wasn't there
0: I wanted to ask you about Henry Vestine because I'm a huge Canned Heat fan. Did you know Alan Wilson at all? No, I didn't know. Henry and
1: um, uh, the mole, I knew. Yeah, Larry. And, um, yeah, Larry and uh, the other guys, you know, I would know peripherally. Hey, how are you doing? What's happening? And we'd sit and smoke a joint or get high or whatever. But we were not friends the way Henry was and, and Larry.
0: I came across a story, and I don't know if you want to comment on it. It's a pretty wild story. I was doing some research. It was written in the Dallas Observer in 1999. Uh, are you familiar with that story? No,
1: I don't know which one.
0: It talks about the post-love situation and what happened when the band broke up and everything. And one of the things I found just outrageous was that that Arthur was uh, jailed in a California state prison for allegedly firing a gun in the air that apparently another guy came later on and said, no, Arthur didn't do it. I did it. And yet they just stuck it to him. And then Brian and Ken died. And it actually said about Johnny, it said, Johnny's whereabouts remain a mystery, but people seem to imagine him walking off into the desert and never coming back. One thing is certain. He sure doesn't want to talk about his old band and the associations with love. Was that a reporter that ever talked to you personally? No, or?
1: they never asked me anything. If they asked me, I would have told them all about it. And the truth about the Arthur situation is Arthur at one point became enamored with guns. It, it Just for some reason. I have no idea why. But almost like Phil Spector did. You know, he yeah. had a gun on him all. the Anyway, Arthur's like that. He had a gun in a holster. Anyway, he had a party at his house. He was living in an apartment, actually. And um, they're making noise and dancing and stuff. And one of the neighbors uh, was upset and said that they're making too much noise. Now Arthur has the gun and he goes to the door. The first time with the gun, he tells the guy to go you know, go to hell, so to speak. I, I won't use his language. And then they go back and you know the party goes on. And the guy comes back again, and he's. Angry this time, and then Arthur has the gun out of the holster and pointed at him and fired. He's just holding the gun now, and the guy calls the police. And um, a couple days later, um, they decide that, you know they came there and the police um, told them you know uh, they had to break it up so that the party breaks up. And a couple days later, the police come there and arrest him because Arthur had been arrested before uh, and then. Uh, couple of other things
0: and um so they already had a they had a couple strikes on him already yeah
1: so they charged him and so that was a 12 year because it was a three strikes thing and so they gave him 12 years in prison and i think he did six or seven of them before um the appellate courts reversed it and said he had ineffective assistance counsel because the other two charges actually were misdemeanor charges and they never should have been part of the three strikes so um, he served as I said six or seven years I'm not certain uh, and he was released by the appellate court and that yeah. was that.
0: Bruce Botnick was, was also quoted in this article saying that Arthur came up to him and he didn't even recognize him outside the Whiskey-A-Go-Go in the 80s and Arthur said hey man you got any money and he said I didn't even recognize him he didn't recognize me and it made me feel terrible. So, I assume Arthur had a really rough period.
1: Yeah. The sad part of this is Arthur was getting all of these accolades, and and he'd been called a genius, and all of these things that that people are throwing at him, all these superlatives. And Arthur knows that he's not a musician, that he never played, I think, on, on all of our records, he played guitar on one and that was on i think my flash on you which has like two three chords he couldn't play you know guitar very well at all you know arthur had a musician's soul but he didn't want to take the time required to become a musician and so but he's hearing all of this and he goes into the studio and now he's telling other musicians what to play. Like when we recorded, he didn't tell us what to play. He just said, Oh, I like this or I don't like that. And you know, we'd work it out until we came to an understanding and the song would kind of write itself. You know, we play and you know, I've mentioned that to you before. Where now Arthur is basically he's running the whole show. He's telling these guys what to play, and they play what he tells them to play. Well, as I said, not being a musician, it's hard to tell another musician what to play and have it turn out right, unless you are a musician yourself, and he can't write it down, so all he can tell him. Ready? We're gonna roll, take 24,
2: just for you. Okay, let's take it from the top again. Hold it. Okay, ready? Roll it, we'll take 26. A better start Take twenty-seven. Oh, goes, come on, you're playing too hard on the strings. Take thirty-one. guys should relax a little bit, man. Take 35. Hold it. What happened to the sound of your guitar? You got up as loud as you had it? Are you ready? Take 36. man Brian speeds up you stay in one range of the guitar throughout the whole thing man because you know you're the one that says you can blow in the studio man nobody to bug you you gotta blow man are you ready to take it from the top
1: so the gig start being fewer and fewer and fewer and it just goes downhill after that he's trying to live up to an image that he does not have. The finest wordsmith poet that I've ever known or heard, you know, I put him in the category with Bill, but Arthur was not a musician.
0: And I suppose you had conversations with him from time to time where you might say, hey man, why are you doing this to yourself? Can't we focus? You know, why are we spinning our wheels? Did you ever, were you able to reach him? Of course, and we came together and
1: talked and tried putting it back together, but either Brian was still this is before, you know, of course, before he died, or Kenny, every you know, no one actually came together at the same time until they
0: released a box set,
1: and the box set was Love Story.
0: Was that Rhino? Rhino did that? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: and we finally decided that we were going to all get together and play, and we worked out our differences and all the hard feelings and all of that. And we you know, were going to the rehearsal studio uh, to play. And this is when Arthur we found out Arthur has his case because we didn't know that Arthur was going to court or there was a chance that he would go to prison.
0: So what year was that. this about? We're, are we talking about early, ni- early 90s?
1: Yeah, this would have been yeah. around 95, 96.
0: 95, 96, okay. Yeah, and
1: uh, they released the box set and we were going to go on a world tour to support it and we would have gotten... a. Really nice, nice paycheck. So everybody was, cor- of course, on board for that. But that's when you know we're waiting at the studio for Arthur, and he doesn't show. And so now we're pissed off at him, thinking, "Man, this is the same old Arthur." You know, he won- doesn't show up, and you know, but we find out later that um, he had been uh, found guilty, and they took him immediately right into custody right there. And
0: that was that. Wow the timing of that sucks so bad because you guys were up for a uh, nomination uh, for the rock and roll hall of fame. I would imagine around 91 yeah. or 92.
1: Yeah. Everything so, was falling into place. We were yeah. ready to go. And it then be- that happened and that just killed everything. And then we talked about, you know, getting together, Brian and I, and then um, Brian is having a, giving a, an interview with Kevin Delaney, and uh, it was right across from Canders. and he just has a heart attack right there and dies on the spot. He didn't, you know, it wasn't like he was sick. He knew that he had about nothing. He just was sitting talking and then just died.
0: And he was he was roughly around fifty at the time. Yeah, like yes. I mean, and this is a thing that the '60s seems dogged by so many premature deaths of so many musicians. Brian Brian turned to to Christian music and he yeah. he t- was doing his own thing. Did he have the kind of demons that would drive you to not keep yourself healthy or, or drug issues? I, I still can't figure out what happened to him
1: well, of course all of us had drug issues you know myself included so um, you know I had gotten to the point where i had put it behind me and uh, moved on but both of them still were part of that scene. But I think once Brian became involved in, in uh, Christian rock and all of that, that was, you know, the door for him to walk through and, and get himself away from that. So he was able to exercise the, those demons and, and uh, become a different person. You know, I don't, I never knew whether it was the right thing for him to do because of the type of people that he was involved with were, you know, a little far out as far as I'm concerned. You know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm so. wondering if it was a, if it was a, a reaction or a kind of a coping mechanism, because some people do get into religion um, to try to find some kind of purpose, but they end up getting really sidetracked. So,
1: yeah, I think that probably was it to a degree, because. Um, it, it, no, you don't want to kind of denigrate someone else's faith thats that's yeah no. you know, between him and whoever it is that you know he looks to us his god but it it just seemed to me that it was more than a simple faith thing i think it was you know trying to find a purpose a reason you know so he could understand who he was because all of us and that happens not just to us but so many musicians you know, you finally get your dream. Everything that you wanted is finally here. You've got the money and the accolades and all of the people, you know, the adorable, adoring crowds, rather. And you do everything you can to destroy that or become involved with drugs. It's like you do everything you can to destroy what you spent your life to build. And so many of us do that, and it's hard to understand why. I think a person could... Um, if they could figure that out, they could become a trillionaire. You know, a psychologist, or psychiatrist could write a book figuring out because it's not, you know, it's just damn near everybody that I know. There's so few musicians that don't succumb to demons, you know, one way or the other.
0: Sometimes when you achieve fame overnight or really fast, there's a part of you that feels like you don't deserve it. And there's a part of you that feels... Maybe someone's going to find out you're really not as great as everybody thinks you are, and there's a sense of living up to what everyone. If, if you're like Jim Morrison, they're expecting a freak show. So it's like, how can we, you know, how can we push his buttons so he flips out on stage? And I think for even the most well-adjusted person, it's really tough to be to be vaulted up to this pinnacle of fame and everything, and then in your guys' case with love just having it end overnight. You say to yourself, I'm 21 years old. Now what do I do? You moved to New York and you were doing um, some session work. I just wanted to ask you real quick about the Miles Davis thing and the whole percussion thing, because I thought that was a really interesting project. Yeah, he, you know, that was fascinating
1: because, you know, he would sometimes, you know, go to the park, Washington Square whatever, and there's the drum circles. And people are, you know, whatever percussion thing they can find, or trash can lid or whatever and they all started beating and there's dancing and they're doing these rhythmic. And they become more and more complex as these people are playing together. And they thought that this would be fascinating if I could do that and play. But the thing was, they could not leave or did not understand that you have to leave a space for the soloist. And Miles was the soloist, so You can't just play all over him. You have to leave room for him to play and they didn't understand that and the fact was if they were taught how to play and what to do then it's no longer spontaneous and, and it defeats the purpose so there were a couple of recordings that they did and they really you know I don't think they should be released in other words you know that would be great thinking ah there's money but as far as, as pushing, the, you know, the boundaries or doing something that's worthwhile. It, it, it really isn't. It's just, you know, basically people beating on drums and, and trash can lids and, and uh, a trumpet trying to find its place. In it, and it, it never comes together. It never melds into something that you would call music.
0: It sounds a little bit like uh, Lou Reed's Metal Machine Music. Sometimes
1: there's too much, you know, and that's, that's what was there. You know, there's just too much. And, and as I say, if you try to explain to them, then the spontaneity goes away. And then you're just,
0: you know, when you found out that the damned had done a, a, a cover version of alone again, or, and you basically turned on an entire new generation of fans. Can you talk oh, about yeah, that? That
1: was cool. You know, that, that was amazing that they had a pretty substantial hit with it. And, um, that was the, what, what was so cool is when arthur got back out and then you know it was a year or so later before we got together and then and started playing and we still to this day we have a humongous audience of younger people and you know we just played in 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 uh, liverpool in sefton park a couple of years ago and we had o- over eighty thousand people come up you know we're drawn everywhere we play now we sell out and we're playing especially in europe and England, to very very large crowds and they're all of course they, they're not in our age bracket because most of us are you know moving on right, right. Uh, there's so there's still quite a few of us that you know people from my generation that are playing
0: i guess the love farewell revisited uh tour in the uk was that did that actually go all the way through was that Uh, canceled early due to COVID, or was that in 2019?
1: Oh, no, no, we played that in 2019. And it was great. And um, so we were planning to do a Redux, actually. I love um, the final tour again, you know, because we had such a um, really huge audience, and the response was so great that we were invited to come back. So we were set to play uh, next summer. Of course, that had to be canceled because of COVID. So we still are in talks of maybe doing it in 2022. So uh what that was was we were giving a farewell to the people that had come out and supported us all those years. And so it was, you know, just a kind of a thank you that was more than just a thank you. It was just like a celebration of a time, a celebration of a life. Um our lives of music yeah. or, you know, and so many things that we, it, it just didn't, it couldn't end like that. It it had to, to, um, go on. So we will continue to play until there's no longer anyone there to hear. Us, so.
0: Yeah. And you're still featured on YouTube all over the place, um, jamming with bands like the Standells. So if anybody wants to go see, uh, see Johnny Eccles on a stage, you can still see him on YouTube until this whole thing gets, uh, worked out how, how do you how, how have you been dealing with the, the loss of the live music scene is it something that you've been able to look at philosophically no i haven't no oh, okay at all been, are you pissed you know, i mean pissed. how do you feel about it
1: oh i'm fine we're healthy i've had a vaccine and uh-huh. um, so we're doing fine georgie and, and me we're happy and um we're bummed out because you know this time we can never get back and time is moving on and at some point uh, you know I won't be able to do that you know stand up on stage for you know two three hours and play but right now I can and I just I feel robbed of of this time of of this moment because we built to this thing and we've got so many people involved and we have such great audiences and then instead of following through and continuing we have this something just comes out of the blue and snatches that away from us. And we're all in
0: limbo. I mean, baby lemonade, great band for uh, you to collaborate with, by the way, they talk a lot about younger people and how it's affecting younger people. But I always say, well, how about the older folks who have a very finite uh, amount of time and energy and the ability to be mobile and just like function? I mean, I, like when I talked to uh, Al Cooper, I don't think he can play anymore due to back issues and stuff like that. So it's such a precious time and it's so sad that there's not some way to work this out. I'm sure you would play in like a spacesuit bubble if they would let you into a club.
1: I certainly would. Yeah. I see Eric Clapton, you know, he has uh, neuropathy and nerve issues and he's getting to the point where he can't play. Fortunately, you know, everything is functioning right. And actually I'm playing better now than ever, but, Get to sit all day long and, and practice and play because if I can't play for an audience then I play for the birds for my wife and, you know so we yeah um, but yeah it's it's just it's frustrating because you know you just love that the feedback the, the love that, that you get from being on stage you know it's just such a it's an uplifting you know it's hard to describe to someone who hasn't experienced that but to have you know thousands of people they're attentive people that know the words to your songs and sing them along with you. And at that moment in time, everything is right with the world. Yeah. And that's hard to give up. You know, that's why a lot of people just don't know when to walk away. And uh, so, you know, yeah, I agree. Her, she'll tell me when it's time. You know, <laughs> she say maybe it's time to go.
0: By the way, I wanted to wish you a happy birthday. I understand your birthday is coming up in a few days. Yeah, it'll be on
1: the 21st, so. Yeah, I stopped counting years quite a long time ago, so I have no idea which one it is. But it's, you know, I'm moving on.
0: My birthday's on the 25th, so we're a couple of Pisces. Well, uh, a couple of Pisces. Cool. <laughs> cool. You know, we've been talking now for two hours, and it's been just a, a a joy to talk to you, man. I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. My guest today has been Johnny Eccles. The original guitarist for the band Love and a tireless rock and roll instigator who still gets up on LA stages or will soon be getting up on local stages again to jam with classic rock and garage bands. And uh, Johnny was also principal narrator for Laurel Canyon, which I think is the definitive LA rock documentary, can be seen now on the Epics channel. And he will also be guest starring in a new series coming out, look for it soon, called Where the Action Was. And I just want to thank you, Johnny, for a lifetime of great contribution and for being on the show today.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: All right. You take care and you have a good 2021.
1: Thank you, man. You too. Take care, brother.